This is Between You and Me, a podcast from the KAXE Morning Show. I'm Chelsea Perkins, news director of KAXE, and I'm here with Heidi Holton, the mother, the of invention, <laughs> the <laughs> the woman who keeps this train rolling around here. <laughs> oh, there's if people knew all the little things that happen behind the scenes, and uh, like the, just this morning, two people. I don't unlock the doors if I'm on the air very early in the morning because sometimes weird stuff happens, right? People just walk in. And two people were waiting. They couldn't get in because no one else was here. It was 8 o'clock. <laughs> it was just this weird. They were calling while I was on the air, but I couldn't take the phone call. And it's like all this strange, strange stuff. But no one <laughs> no one knew what was going on. We just took care of it. It was all fine. <laughs> I so. know. I've seen, I've seen what goes on behind the scenes when we're on the, on the air. And there's some really funny things that yeah. happen sometimes and then you got to go live and just try to act like totally normal that you didn't just spill coffee all over someplace or know. you know <laughs> oh, all right well let's talk a little bit about something that i am i don't you know sarah bignall our uh, ceo and executive director here she and i have these conversations that as you get older you seem to pay attention to birds <laughs> like well, we never used to my best friend Something happened to her in the last two years where she just became a 100% bird nerd. And like, I support it, you know, sure. but like, right, sometimes I look at our at us now at 36, 37 years old, and we've known each other since we were little children. And I'm like, you know, actually with us, though, it, it kind of does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have become so enamored by... I think it's just so exciting once once winter actually went away this year because it felt longer than any other winter ever. But of course, it wasn't at all. <laughs> um, but I sit on our deck a lot and use this Merlin app. Have you used it? I haven't, but I I've heard you talk about it, and I'm like, I need to because I'm always wondering, hey, who was that that just whistled? Well, you and you have no idea how many different birds. I mean, I'll sit down, I hear something that I don't recognize because I'm trying to also learn in this process, right? Not so. Just, how do you use the app exactly? So I'm opening up the app right now, and it has a sound ID, and I just hit the record button. And it starts to do that. So I can also look at the past recordings that I've done, and it's listing all the birds off. So the last one I did, my list of birds, I was completely shocked at how many. There was the sound of a pine warbler, an American crow, a song sparrow, a yellow-throated vireo, an American tree sparrow, a chipping sparrow, a black-capped chickadee, a downy woodpecker, and a northern cardinal. That's all from one recording? Yeah. It was uh, four minutes I was recording on my deck. Wow. Less than a week ago. I was very upset because I wanted to see that Northern Cardinal, but I couldn't see it. But it was picking it up. And then you can also, now after the fact, I can click on the bird and it it um, gives you more information about it. And you can actually play it. We were getting birds to kind of mimic what we were playing, too. Interesting. Yeah. So I was just thinking that I... <laughs> My dad was the first person that came to mind on this because he is someone who my whole life has seemed to think that he 
can like communicate with nature. (laughs) So he's always trying to like make the noises that the animals are making or make the chirping sounds, trying to get the birds to talk back to him. And I can see himself recording himself with that to see if he shows up as a bird. Oh my gosh, he should. So one of the new ones that I love, I love the song. I'm going to see if we can hear this. Is the pine warbler. I've totally heard that one. I wouldn't have known it was a pine warbler, though. I love it. Yeah, and so coming up, we're going to hear a conversation. Laura Erickson joined us on the morning show recently. Uh, You know her from For the Birds. It's a segment we've run for a long time. She's written, I think, 11 books on birds. She's worked for the uh, Cornell Ornithology the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, that's who makes the Merlin app. Right. They're like the bird experts yeah. of of all time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she talked about in this interview, because I was telling her how much I like it, because she kind of knows I didn't know so much about birds before. In fact, one time it ended up Aaron Brown from Minnesota Brown, and who's frequently been on the air with us. I don't even remember why, but he was co-hosting with me, and we were going to, we both were just not really connected to nature at that time in our life. We both are now, but... I remember he didn't know what to ask her, and so he asked her, how do birds react when it rains, or something like that, and we got done, and he was just like, oh, I'm so embarrassed, I asked about rain, but I hey, did but not you know. know. What, That's a legit question. I I sometimes think about, like, yeah. you know, what do the animals do when the weather's crappy, Right. you know? <laughs> right. Um, so anyway, as I was talking to Laura, she talks about that, you know, you have to put in your location to where you are, because then that's you know, it's going to pull up the right birds or or that kind of thing. But because the Cornell Lab does this, it's only using your location when you have your app open. Like they're very committed. They're not trying to follow you in other places or do other things. And they are, you know, it's over 10,000 plus species that are in here. Yeah. So anyway, not to, it's not an ad for Merlin, but it's really been a very fun well, is, thing for does me. Does it cost anything? No, or? it's free. There you go. Yeah. So how cool is that? It is very cool. I'm out of my garden a lot right now, and I'm constantly seeing and hearing birds, and I should really have that with me because I'm always like, who made that little complicated melody just now? I know. I know. <laughs> Where are you? I, I can't see you. I can hear you. <laughs> well, in the last couple of weeks, I'm falling asleep to loons, maybe week, that we've been able to have windows open at night, right? Loons and owls. So I'm hearing, of course, the call of the loon that everyone knows, but also this, who, who, who cooks for you is what the (laughs) owl sounds like. It is just that I'm just like fading off into sleep hearing these things. It's fantastic. So we live near a lake. We're not on a lake, but we're close enough that we can hear the loons Mm -hmm. at our house Uh, but it was really funny because i'm part of this like lake association group on facebook because i guess they consider me close enough Mm -hmm. to be part of it and someone posted a video the other night of what woke them up and what woke them up was the loudest loons and there was like there had to have been tons of them it was this really interesting in fact i should pull that up and write that because it was really i had cool i had a similar thing the other night too it was i mean i it's weird to say that cacophony is overused but it actually is that word but it was so loud 
it didn't bother me, but I, well, I do remember kind of waking up because I'm like, is something happening? Who's screaming? Oh, it's loons. Okay, we're okay. <laughs> All right, here is the video. This was posted by Matthew Luft, um, and it's part of the Lower South Long Lake group on Facebook. That's the lake we live by in Crowing County. So I'm going to just play a little bit of it. I mean, it almost sounds fake. It's I like know. every sound that a loon makes, like all at once. <laughs> I know. Speaking of fake, there's something about, you know, because loon is the state bird of Minnesota. I, I just kind of, I hate anything that has a loon on it. Really? Yeah. I'm kind of the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. It's like a stupid, I don't know why I'm that way. But Or or if you hear the calls, like some gift shops, you walk in there, you go, you know, they've got the, the CD playing or <laughs> yep. something. And But I adore the actual loons. It's not like I have that feeling about them, but it like stuffed animals or things like that for some reason bother me, but I, sh- I should maybe change my tune. Well, I, d- I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of a homer. Like I just like things with Minnesota on them, Minnesota regalia. You know, sure. I don't like it when it gets a l- too Northwoodsy. That's right. like too much for me, but right. I, <laughs> we, we, uh, there was a free like trailer of stuff near our house. Oh and my I God, was isn't pick- that the best? I don't. I was picking through it. I found some really actually pretty awesome stuff. I found these really neat um, baskets that were like big baskets to put blankets in and stuff. Wow. But in there was this old, I'm sure they got it for free. It was like a Minnesota lottery t-shirt sure. from like 1995 so it had like the big but it was giant a giant loon the the symbol of the minnesota lottery and i, I immediately was like heck yeah you know here's this vintage <laughs> minnesota tea i'm gonna sport this and i do uh, <laughs> wear it i mean it's it's too big to wear in public sure. but it's nice to you know wear around the house and i'm always gonna be a uh you know minnesota booster there so. we go. Well, Laura Erickson is a booster of all things bird. It's a delightful conversation we have coming up with her. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, Laura joined us recently, talked with me and John Latimer on the Tuesday morning show. It's time to talk birds with Laura Erickson. You know Laura Erickson from For the Birds, heard on KEXE, but she's also been a scientist, a teacher, a writer, a licensed wildlife rehabilitator, a blogger, a public speaker, a photographer, American Robin and Whooping Crane expert for the popular Journey North educational website, and a science editor at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. She's written 13 books about birds. She's currently a columnist and contributing editor for Bird Watching Magazine. And we consider her our friend, Laura Erickson, joining us now. Hi, Laura. Thanks for being here. Hi, Heidi. I'm thrilled to be here because I'm KAXE's and John Latimer's biggest fan. Ah. <laughs> well, you are one of our biggest, we are one of your biggest fans. We uh, we turn to you when the questions are beyond our ken, and they often are. <laughs> People have some amazing questions about birds, and surprisingly, I guess not surprisingly, you are seldom stumped. 
<laughs> well, when I am stumped, you usually have sent me the question by email, and I can look up the answer. <laughs> uh, looking just looking over your shoulder, I see that you have a uh, a library right behind you that may, in fact, include a book or two about birds. They're all about birds. My <laughs> grandson Walter thinks it's so interesting that there are more bird books about birds than anything, even seaplanes. <laughs> <laughs> a guy's got to gotta have his favorites. <laughs> we have been asking folks if they have questions, and we you can text in to 218-326-1234. Um, someone asking if you've seen any blue-headed vireos. Uh, yes, my good friend Brad Snelling just got a photo of one, I think, yesterday at the College of St. Scholastica. And they are our first vireo to return in spring. I haven't had any that I've noticed in my yard yet, but I've been gone more than I've been home since April. So if I've not seen one, it's not because they aren't here. But I have uh, seen one in Ohio last week. And I know like Brad got his uh, photo right here in Duluth. So they are back, at least some of them. Laura, one of the things that's uh, interested me and I think others as well, uh, Hummingbirds have returned this past week, and right on schedule. They're very reliable. Um, I have uh, my average date is the 11th, and oddly enough, this year I told my wife to put out the, the hummingbird feeders, and uh, and she looked at me one night. We're sitting there, and she said, "When are the hummingbirds going to come?" And I said. They are going to be here before sundown. And about five minutes later, a little male flew up and started drinking from the feeder. And I was pretty thrilled with my prescience. But uh, I see a male and then I see two males and then I see a little display, but I haven't seen any females. And the males don't seem to be like the regular summertime visitors. What's their habit early in the season? Are these, my wife was wondering, are these hummingbirds just sort of stopping in for a bite as they continue north to Canada? What's up? Uh, very often the very first hummingbirds to return, well, they're virtually always males. And very often the first to return are the ones that will nest in our neighborhood. Uh, but sometimes they're just passing through. But usually birds do what we call a leapfrog migration. The first robin of spring, the one singing and not eating in fruit trees, is a territorial bird in your yard. And then he'll start fighting with the other robins that are returning that are passing through. Uh, and at each level, the first ones to arrive are the ones that are going to stick around. And so that's how hummingbirds are, too. And in both robins and hummingbirds, the males tend to migrate before the females. Uh, the male's job is to set up the territory, defend it, so nobody's going to encroach on his property um, except his beloved. And with hummingbirds, the females don't care about the male's territory. They each pick their own place, mate with the male of their choice, but they're totally, the, I don't even know if male hummingbirds know where baby hummingbirds come from. Uh, <laughs> they know what they want to do with the female, but it doesn't go beyond that. 
So uh, that made me think of a question. Um, this is Bob here, Tornado Bob. Hi, and Bob. I, uh, for the overwintering robins, um, I, I had something this spring where um, I heard my first, first robin song. Uh, it was very brief, but it was about a week into April. And then, uh, and then I thought, oh, they're, they're here now. And then uh, it really was a couple weeks before I heard another one after the, uh, most of the snow melted. Um, and I suspect that first one I heard might have been an over, overwintering robin. And I'm wondering if, if, if there's some sort of preference for males to overwinter and so they can be there first, first thing in the spring, or is we don't know much about that. I'm not sure. Uh, yes, the males are the ones who tend to winter further north than the females. Uh, and al- also, the one you heard may have been just as the day length increases, uh, robins get more hormonal and their migration tends to follow since your weather bob or tornado bob. Uh, they fo- the robins followed the 37 degree isotherm uh, as far as their migration goes, but their wintering habits have nothing to do with isotherms. They entirely have to do with fruit and how much they can eat in a particular place. But as the days get longer, once in a while, male just his hormones are surging, and it's a bad idea to be too hormonal while you're eating berries or old crab apples because all of the robins have to sort of get along for that. So they try to minimize the singing until one gets to its actual territory where worms are available. But every now and then they feel their oats and burst out in a song. But like you said, that song didn't continue. That was a hormonal last robin of winter song. Okay. Yeah, that seems to make sense. (laughs) We did just get another question. Um, Is there a website where we can learn the sounds of popular birds so that we can identify them by the sound they make? And Laura, I was saying that I'm kind of addicted now to the Merlin app. I use it every day and I absolutely love it and I'm learning so much. I have to admit that the Merlin app helps me when I'm recording birds in my yard and now I can look at the spectrograph of all the songs but some of them are too high frequency for me to hear because I'm an old lady now. (laughs) So I use the Merlin app and that will tell me oh it's that one. Sometimes I'm starting to recognize the spectrographs too. <laughs> uh, but Mer- Merlin is great in the field or with recordings. But if you want to look up a recording of a bird, you can also go to Cornell's All About Birds website. They were developing both sites while I was working there. And a lot of the pictures that Merlin was originally using, because Merlin will also identify your bird pictures. You no longer have to ask someone on Facebook or send emails to people to say, what's this bird? You can use Merlin and it will identify the picture. I just hold it up to my computer screen with the picture. Well, though, I I was testing it to see how accurate it could be about (laughs) very tricky birds. Like Mm. I could hear an alder flycatcher and got his picture. I knew it was an alder flycatcher, but I tested Merlin on it. And sure enough, Alder was the first choice given. 
and it also gave some other Empidinax flycatchers. But it's shockingly accurate, and it's shockingly accurate about bird songs, too. Not 100%. It's going to get maybe an A- minus if it was actually having to identify every single thing, but it's amazingly good. It's really A minus good. A minus has always been a good grade in my book. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And sometimes I tend to I irritate people who I'm hanging out with if I use it too much. It's like Bobby was always he was walking around with that Merlin app all the time. He wouldn't stop using it. <laughs> so. And it's free. It's uh, from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and they make it absolutely free. You do have to tell it exactly where you were and when you were if you're using a recording or a picture and if you're in the field it needs to know where you are but you can give the app permission to use your location while using the app but then when you're not using the app it won't be tracking you <laughs> not like the birds in my yard uh, <laughs> i have i have uh, an eagle's nest in my yard and i have a raven's nest nearby and I have been just astonished that the raven is absolutely, he has a certain call or they have a certain call that they give when the eagle is in the neighborhood. And uh, all I have to do is hear them chattering about and I start looking for the eagle. It's like, oh, there's got to be an eagle around. The ravens are telling me so. And so it's pretty amazing what the birds are doing out there. It's so fun to pay attention in your own yard because that's how you first start understanding bird language. Uh, you've figured out there's that eagle again called by ravens and that's a really cool thing. Uh, it, a bird, also one cool thing about Baltimore Orioles, if you learn the songs of your nesting Orioles, then the next spring, you can recognize which Orioles in your yard are the ones that are going to stick around and which ones are just passing through. Baltimore Orioles, when their babies are each issued a musical instrument, they all get the exact same instrument. But depending on where they grew up, they have different sheet music. Uh, they, they have what we call regional dialects. And you could tell a Duluth one from, a, you know, one on, you know, in Grand Rapids by how that tune goes. So pay attention to your Orioles and you'll be able to recognize the strangers just passing through. Yeah, Orioles are are amazing and and listening learning their song is so gratifying. It just uh, it it makes you realize how many birds are around that you might otherwise not notice. I know one of my favorite birds is the scarlet tanager, and and for a while I had that bird call as my ringtone on my phone. And once I'd heard it enough times, once enough people had called me, I had that song in my head. And now I can be out in the woods and I can hear that song, and I can go, oh, a scarlet tanager, even though I probably have a five percent chance of finding the dang thing. <laughs> You'd think, yeah, they like to stay high up. Oh yeah. Them. <laughs> Every now and then when we have a cold May, they'll turn up at people's bird feeders. I've had them at suet and at jelly. Uh, last year I had my 
best photos ever of scarlet tanagers right from my backyard. Wow. But most years, they don't come to our feeders at all. They stay up in the leafy upper story, so we don't get to see them too often. Yeah. So uh, if I wanted to get the Orioles to stick around, uh, I know that right now they're coming to my hummingbird feeder. What uh, what might I do to attract an Oriole to my yard or to a, where, to a place where I can see it? To an Oriole or a Scarlet Tanager? Uh, an Oriole. Uh, Baltimore Orioles like um, uh, stream sides. They used to nest very, very frequently in American elm trees, but they've had to make accommodations because of Dutch elm disease. So the Baltimore Orioles, uh, they will nest in ash trees, uh, sometimes willows, uh, but it's mainly the vegetation and being pretty close to water that are what the Baltimore Orioles want. If you want to encourage scarlet tanagers to be in your yard, uh, get some mature oak trees. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm working on that. (laughs) One of my friends who uh, bought some property when he retired, planted a lot of oak trees, and his friends were telling him that that was stupid because they would never uh, be economically pay back his investment uh, during his lifetime because he was retired now. But that wasn't why he planted them. He planted them for birds, and he was immediately, even while they were little tiny saplings, getting interesting warblers and scarlet tanagers on them. Yeah, wonderful. So what about feeding uh, uh, Orioles and and getting them to come down to a feeder? What would you put out? I mean, they do come to my hummingbird feeder, but only briefly in the spring. Uh, they, As soon as we start getting um, enough insects and as they settle down to nesting, they all lose interest in our feeders. So uh, the only time we really get them coming to feeders regularly is during migration. And then once in a while, some parents will take them to jelly in the summer, but that's not actually good for the babies. Uh, Eating jelly once or twice a day won't hurt them at all. But some parents are a little lazier than other parents, sort of just like humans, actually. And uh, so if you're seeing baby Orioles, young ones, at your feeder more than once or twice a day, take in the jelly. That's all carbohydrates, and baby Orioles need protein, and they need calcium, which they get from insects. And they have to work a little harder for that. <laughs> but I, I, you could use... Uh, grape jelly, make sure that it's sweetened with sugar. Uh, sugar is best case scenario. Second best is the, um, the high fructose corn syrup. Make sure it does not have artificial sweeteners. Um, especially, I forget the name of the one that is becoming a popular additive in jelly and especially peanut butter because that's definitely toxic to dogs, and I wouldn't put it past it being toxic to birds. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now, though. (laughs) Uh, My husband buys chewing gum with it, so it's one of those artificial sweeteners. Um, But they come to jelly, they come to sugar water, and you can buy special feeders that are better designed for Orioles than for hummingbirds. 
uh, they have bigger perches and slightly bigger holes. Mm -hmm. And some of those feeders also have little dishes for jelly. Very good. Now, really quickly, maybe you would like to review uh, hummingbirds and and how persons might uh, begin to attract them if they haven't or what the ratios should be this time of year. And just... uh, on cold days, make the ratio of sugar to water a third of a cup to one cup. But on normal situations, and if it's like yesterday, it was 80 degrees in my neighborhood in Duluth near the lake, uh, then it should only be a quarter cup to a cup. Um, and uh, the way you get them to nest in your yard, you need a few trees that have at least fairly big limbs that uh, can support, you know, the nest doesn't weigh anything, but they put it on a, a on a, a branch that's between horizontal and a 45 degree angle. Usually they need spider silk and they need lichens to build their nest. So don't be using pesticides and don't wipe out all those spider nests, uh, you know, the spider webs up in your eaves. If it's in a place that nobody looks at anyway, the hummingbirds need that to build their nest. <laughs> You'll never catch me disrupting spiders. They are the enemy of my enemy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, thank you. As always, it's always a pleasure to chat with you about birds. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's been a lot of fun. It's been fun for me, too. Thanks, Laura. You can find lots more information at lauraerickson.com. And don't forget, we, as Laura was telling us, this uh, the Merlin app. I just sent the link to okay. someone who emailed, but it is a great app. You'll get addicted to it very quickly. It's been so fun to hear some uh, to know what I'm listening to. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And I can't believe how quickly they pop up, and you're you don't. It doesn't sound like a whole bunch of birds, <laughs> but they're there and they're yeah. making sounds. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Between You and Me podcast on KAXE, made possible by the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota, with music by Sam Milton. Mm-hmm.